you have to be passionate. You really have to be switched on. You got to be like I. I when I was in the competition bureau, and then when I left, I I spent a lot of weekends and evenings writing. Like I wrote a book, and then I wrote tons of articles. I joined the ABA. I joined the CBA. I was actively involved. So I was out there, passionately uh, writing. This is the Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on the Law School Show. So Josh, do you feel switched on? (laughs) Oh yeah, totally switched on. Man, what a great interview. Justice Cramson was definitely an inspiration. Yeah, he addressed us at our opening um, day in our first year of law school and really struck a chord there. And again, through this interview, taking a few minutes out of his day and really instilling that passion. It was great. Yeah, and I have to say, it was probably more than a few minutes. We got a whole hour with Chief Justice, which was really incredible. We are really excited about playing this episode for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So without much further ado, um, here it is. All the insights of the legal career of the Chief Justice of the Federal Court. And his idea about what it's like to be switched on and passionate about what you do. Well, you just want my name? (laughs) Your name and your title? Oh, okay. Uh, So I'm Paul Crampton, Chief Justice of the Federal Court. Uh, But to everybody who knows me outside the legal community... (laughs) I'm just a brother, a father, a cousin, uh, a son, like anybody else. And why did you become a judge? So I guess I'd been practicing, when did I start, 87, 88? So I'd been practicing, I guess, over 20 years and uh, decided that I wanted to um, go back into the public sector where I'd worked at the beginning of my career at the Competition Bureau. And then I worked for a couple of years in France at, a, at an NGO. And those two uh, periods were highlights for me. And uh, so I was finally in a position where my last child was in grade 12, just about to go to university. And so uh, it was a, a good opportunity to think about going back into the public sector. And so I put an application in, and lo and behold, it got through fairly quickly. And uh, so really it's all about... Um, working in the public interest, making a greater difference. Um, so that's that's why I did it, uh, and I'm really happy I did. Anything particular that made it the highlight for you, the public sector, aside from the things you've mentioned? Well, it's just wonderful being able to do exactly what you think is the right thing at any given time. Of course, now you have to do it uh, uh, within the confines of the law. I mean, we have to apply the law. But there are areas, there are lots of gray areas, and so you can um, put your personal touch on a case when there is such a gray area. Obviously, if there's no gray, you have to apply the law, and it is what it is. And sometimes you feel horrible because it doesn't feel like the right result. It feels like an inequity or an injustice, but the law is the law, and so you apply the law the way you see it. Um, But in many cases, you have an opportunity to um, add something personal if it's, uh, if it's a gray area, you can help to clarify it. Um, you can um, maybe help to uh, influence how others might look at it in the future by, by what you say. Uh, you can introduce a new way of looking at something, even if you don't 
come out with a different result and maybe that new way can get others on a path that eventually leads to a change. Um, so it's nice. It's nice being able to be involved with, um, you know, when you're in, in the corporate law area, you're, tend to, you're tending to deal mostly with, you know, big blue chip clients uh, and their deals, and you're not really dealing so much with uh, everyday people in their lives. And so it's kind of nice to be doing more of that um, so it's just it's a nice change hmm. must be very rewarding well that's the thing it, it, it's rewarding from a, a personal satisfaction perspective uh, it's not it's obviously not as rewarding from a remuneration perspective <laughs> uh, but you know the public sector rarely is I mean the public sector what the public sector gives you is an opportunity to uh, do something that you know may be more closely linked to a higher calling, such as uh, helping to make society a better place, um, uh, working in the public interest, and that can be very motivating, and uh, that can help somebody who's otherwise kind of wondering what they're doing with their life to actually get up with more of a bounce in the morning. So. Is there anything you miss about practicing law? Well, uh, obviously I miss, um, I shouldn't say obviously, I, I miss being on the big deals. I'm sure you would say the same thing. I, mean, I, had, I was blessed with a wonderful opportunity to work in a couple of uh, biggest firms, biggest deal firms in the country. And so uh, you know, I just worked on some phenomenal deals <laughs> in the time I was with those uh, firms. It could have been big infrastructure deals here at home. It, and I bet you I touched just about every industry imaginable <laughs> in the time I practiced competition law because that's, you know, you typically you're dealing with highly concentrated industries in competition law that only have a few competitors. And so you have this opportunity to, to advocate for your client. You have to learn about the industry learn about it really well to the point you can actually explain how it works and uh, how it's going to be changed by a merger or by a trade practice uh, or how it has been changed by a trade practice that the Competition Bureau might be concerned about. So I miss working on the big deals. I mean, obviously, it's hard not to miss <laughs> the money, <laughs> but, you know, it's still we still get paid very well, and so uh, it's, it's easy enough to make the adjustment. Uh, there's no more exotic <laughs> vacations or anything like that. <laughs> so is it about learning in depth about an area that you miss about the deals, or is there something else? Well, we still learn in depth about um, matters that come before us, but they're different types. And so if you have a curious mind, um, which I think a lot of people who go to law school, most people who go to law school would have, um, you know, you're always going to get a steady diet of, of new things to work on. In the competition field, I was learning how industries worked and then learning how competition works and learning how something might change that competitive dynamic, whether it's a merger, whether it's a trade practice, whether it's uh, a cartel uh, or an agreement among competitors, whether it's um, a trade association proposing to do something whether it's uh, something that's considered to be a deceptive marketing practice. Um, and so it was always nice to be able to, you know, 
dig in and, and, and be able to advocate almost with a tabula rasa because there wasn't a whole lot of, there isn't a whole lot of law in the competition area, even now. Certainly when I started in 86, uh, there wasn't. And so, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind not having a lot of clarity, and I didn't, and if you like to have a lot of room to create, it was, it was a perfect field for that. You know, and there's fields that are like that now that are emerging, you know, internet law, IT law, um, are too, but, but other areas are just exploding. Just look at Aboriginal law and even IP law. There's any, a lot of the areas that we're dealing with are in rapid change, immigration law. Um, so uh, if you like to kind of apply your mind to new legal challenges that also have important social dimensions, uh, the law is a wonderful place. And certainly the public sector and the courts are a fantastic place. How much creativity is there in working as a judge? Well, there can be a lot, um, especially in areas of, uh, of, of where, where there's where it's gray. Um, you know, you'll get counsel that'll be making submissions, and uh, sometimes you need to get creative to either bridge the gap or to f flesh out why, if you're inclined to accept somebody's submissions, but you don't quite think that they've given you what you need to get to where you need to get to, then you have to kind of fill in the submissions, uh, and that's kind of nice. So tell us more about the day um, you were called. And, uh, the day I was called? <laughs> I think what happens is normally you get called in the morning to say, where are you going to be later this morning, which would be when the cabinet meeting ends. Okay. And so you naturally say, well, I'll be right by my desk. <laughs> <laughs> where do you need me to be? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so you wait, and then, then you get a call just before noon or around that time after cabinet has met, and, and, and the minister, or, or the minister's advisor, judicial affairs advisor might phone you and say, the minister's going to call you and 10 minutes, are you available? And you, know, you might say, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I got called, and um, so the minister called and told me that I'd been uh, appointed, told me that I couldn't tell anybody except maybe my wife <laughs> until the governor general had signed off. So then, you know, you spend the rest of the day keeping this amazing secret to yourself wow. <laughs> and your spouse. But, but you know you've got to drop your pen by the end of the day. You can't work, uh, you can't bill after midnight that day. And so uh, you realize you've got a lot to do. <laughs> you got to figure out, now, what am I going to prioritize in these remaining few hours? As a practical matter, you're probably left with, you know, maybe six or seven hours to finish up something that you might have been in the middle of and, and you can finish up way more efficiently than the next person could do and so it's in the client's interest that you, know, you do it but obviously if you've got many clients you have to figure out which one's going to get your attention yeah. um, but it's, it's kind of like you know when you the day you graduate in your case from, from your undergrad uh, in both of your cases when you graduate from law school and you've got your whole future in front of you you know, everything that you've done up to that point is preparing you for this, and you don't quite know what it's going to be like. It's really exciting. 
um, it's that feeling. It's a, it's a really neat feeling. Actually, I still have it to some degree, believe it or not. What? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of neat. Hmm. It's different than once you're 10 years in to a career and, and you're still doing the same thing and you kind of know what you're going to be doing. And it's it must be a different perspective, like a second stage, you know, typical sort of transition from school into the workforce, but within the workforce, within um, you becoming a better expert in the law, to have that new kind of lease. Well, you change. You, you change from um, having files and doing business development and you know doing dockets and uh, um, you know writing briefs and submissions uh, to actually preparing for cases. You know, you read other people's submissions, you come in, you listen to them, and then you write judgments. Uh, in my case now, obviously, I got a significant management responsibility. Uh, and that was something that I didn't have on my radar screen <laughs> when I got appointed. So that, that was kind of a, a nice little unexpected twist. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's very different, um, but it's, it's very rewarding. How has this job changed you? How has it changed me? That's a very good question. Is that on there? No. <laughs> <laughs> How has it changed me? Um, Sorry for deviating. <laughs> yeah, no. How has it changed me? I certainly have a much better appreciation of a much broader range of the law. Because I, I was... a a specialist in competition law and, and foreign investment law and maybe a little bit of other regulatory law. And now I'm back out doing, um, you know, a lot of basic things that, you know, we would have been dealing with in law school. And so that's really neat. Um, well, you know, to the extent that you have an, uh, an opportunity to um, try and seek and, and identify and then apply what you think is a just result in, in a particular case. You know, you try to... It's changed me to looking more for what... Seeking and trying to apply justice as opposed to trying to get a file done without really thinking about justice. You're just thinking about commercial interests. and So you're getting these files done, but you're not really thinking. Justice isn't first and foremost in your mind. So there's that. Uh, and obviously in my current position, you know, you're trying to channel, uh, well, I guess you do as a, as a senior partner as well. You're trying to help other people to grow and uh, to shine. Um, I think I probably have more of an opportunity to do that here just because it's a bigger team than any team I would have ever managed <laughs> in a law firm. So as law students or as young lawyers interested in becoming a judge, where do we start? That's a good question. So um, first of all, I think you start as being a clerk. <laughs> no, I, I, I think clerkship, a lot of people who are clerks wind up being judges. I think they, I'm not sure... It's so much a, a chicken and egg thing, as maybe some people might think. I think a lot of people, through the clerk experience, see what it's like to be a judge and say, gee, that would be a neat thing to do, and then go about making that happen over the next 20 years. 
Um, so I think the clerkship experience certainly gives you an insight into what it would be like to be a judge. And if you don't like that, then you can kind of eliminate that as a possibility early on. Mm -hmm. uh, but chances are you're probably going to be really attracted to it after having gone through three years of law school, reading cases and talking about cases and getting excited about them, and then being in a court, seeing how they're actually made. Um, I think I think you'd find that interesting. So I would always encourage somebody to f start off thinking about clerk clerking or putting in clerkship applications, thinking very carefully about the court that they want to go to, because you know, the courts are very different. Even the federal courts are, are different. Like our court is different from the Federal Court of Appeal, which has a, like a third tax, and they've got all the Section 28 um, tribunals that they get appeals from. We don't see any of those, so the CRTC, the NEB, the Transportation uh, Agency, et cetera, the Pension Appeals Board. So, you know, you have to look at the kind of law you'd want to do. The, the Superior Courts tend to do a lot of criminal, a lot of family, and so um, depending on what you're interested in, you'd uh, orient yourself towards that, that court. But then I think litigation is a great it's not an essential, but it, it certainly is a very helpful uh, formation to go into. You don't see a lot of solicitors applying to come to the courts. You do see a lot of litigators because they're familiar with the courts, and so they uh, they tend to pick it up a lot more quickly. But, um, you know, there, there are solicitors that come to the court as well. I was more of a solicitor than a litigator. Competition is kind of like a quasi area of quasi-litigation. So... Uh, that would be the next thing. And then maybe specialize in an area, try to specialize, try to become a leader in, in an area that uh, is dealt with by the courts, that, where the courts have a significant level of involvement. Um, so you, know, you might have family, a criminal, as I mentioned, IP, Aboriginal. Um, what are some other areas? Commercial litigation, obviously, in my area, competition. Um, and then you've got, you can then say, yeah, I've, I've got, I'm an, I'm an expert or a, a leader in an area of core competency of a particular court. And that would help you, I think, to become a judge when you ultimately put your application in. So there's kind of a starting from, <laughs> you know, clerking through early career to later career. Can you talk and about write that? and teach, hmm. right? Because those things all help out on the application as well, right? Writing, uh, being a good legal writer, being a, an opinion leader in your area, I think, will all, all typically inure to your advantage. Hmm. Could you talk about the application process as well? The application process, well, um, it's administered by the Commissioner for Federal Judicial Affairs, who's, uh, he's an entity, and the, the Commissioner's office was established to kind of create an arm's length relationship uh, from the Minister's office. And so the Commissioner's office administers the process. I think there's 16 or 17 independent judicial affairs, judicial advisory committees, we call them JACs, across the country. There's three in Ontario two in Quebec, and then one in uh, in each of the other provinces, and somehow you get up, oh, there's one for the tax court, somehow you get up to 17, 16 or 17, 
and um, and so you put your application into the commissioner. You typically have to have six primary references, and you can have some secondary references. And so then they'll check your references, and they'll meet, and they'll assess your application. And then when you get, if you get through, they'll either recommend you or not recommend you. You'll never know whether you got recommended or not recommended. Your application is then good for two years from the time they uh, recommend you. If you got recommended, uh, you can reapply because often you may not get a appointed during that two-year period, so you have to renew your application, and there's a special process for doing that. And if you don't do that, then you have to restart the whole process. And then once you get through the JAC, uh, or AJAC, then it's just a question of um, trying to get on the short list over in the minister's office. <laughs> so that's the ins and outs of becoming a judge. What about becoming a clerk? Well, the clerks, we have an independent, we've got a, a, an online application process, and so we would have people um, screening them for the best candidates, you know, by objective measures. Um, so you know, typically marks, but, but marks aren't the only thing. People might be looking for certain types of backgrounds. For example, IP judges, people who do a lot of IP might be looking for science backgrounds. So you've got the background, you've got the marks. Um, that's really, those are the two most important criteria, wouldn't they be? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then there's the, uh, the actual interview. And so the judges would typically, starting with the most senior judges, they would interview the best candidates and then the next most senior judges would interview those of the best who were still available and, and then maybe others who hadn't been um, interviewed. And it just goes through all the way down to the newest judge. Okay. Yeah. How, how long did that take you? I think it only took two or three, four weeks this time. Is it still ongoing or is it done mm-hmm. now? It's still going. <coughs> yeah, okay. So it, takes, it might take a while for the process to kind of get down to the, the newest judges. But we encourage people from all over the country because we like to uh, be represented from all over the country. I think other than um, one province, which shall remain unnamed, that uh, requires their applicants to bite the bullet before the rest of us have, have made offers, um, I think most of us are on the same timetable so that a, a a student can choose between a provincial superior court and us, or a provincial appellate court and and us, or the FCA, mm-hmm. or the uh, Supremes for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, no, we uh, we actively encourage students from right across the country. We obviously have a lot from Ottawa because the people are here and they're bilingual, and a lot of us like to have a bilingual clerk. But there's lots of bilingual, can- good bilingual candidates uh, in other law schools across the country, and. You know, there are a lot of judges who are unilingual, and, and so, so they don't necessarily seek a, a bilingual uh, clerk. So, What yeah. else do you look for in a clerk? I look for thoughtfulness. I look for passion, because you can't be switched on if you're not passionate, and I like people to be switched on. Uh, and you can't be creative if you're not switched on and passionate so and I look for creativity because often there's often you need creativity to 
adjudicate a case. You need some level of of creativity, uh, even if it's just in how you're looking at bringing a new perspective to how you're how the matter is being looked at, looking at it through a different lens. Um, obviously, you know you want the person to be somebody that you can work with. Uh, you look at at their writing samples and want to see how they write because it'll be important to have, especially as a clerk, uh, you know, to be have somebody who, I guess whose writing style is not too different from yours. Uh, I like people to write very succinctly. <laughs> if somebody is long-winded and takes a long time to get to the point, I can, I can just see myself skipping over their stuff. <laughs> Which students reading the judgments also appreciate when it's short and <laughs> concise. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. Yes. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So... Back to your career a little bit and the progression. Can you give us some examples? Many people, you know, they have different types of failures along the way, hurdles they have to overcome. Can you give us some examples of failures you've faced in your life? Well, you know, one of the things that I said, uh, were you guys there that first day of law school? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. So I mentioned the D-plus in my favorite course, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> it's not really a failure, but it kind of is, almost is. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite course and I knew it cold but you know you just look at you suck it up you take it on the chin and uh, you move on but I've seen lots of people in my career who you know didn't get asked back after articles or who didn't make partner who were you know really good young lawyers who ultimately went on and did very well and so what I'd like to say is you know just because it doesn't work out and it, and it may not work out for you know, very legitimate reasons that are, like, out completely outside your control. Like, maybe just the culture of the place didn't work for you. Uh, maybe there was somebody who didn't like you. That you know, Often people don't get asked back because there's one person who just had a bad experience with them and, and kind of digs in and says no, and so the person doesn't get asked back. Um, so I would say don't let that get to you. Um, sometimes, you know, you might say, well, there's a reason why it didn't work, and it'll work somewhere else, uh, as long as you're passionate and switched on. I mean, if you didn't get asked back because you weren't switched on, well, um, maybe the reason you weren't switched on was because the environment just didn't feel right, um, but maybe it's because you weren't looking at things the right way either, and so, you know, you'd, when something like that happens, you, you know, yeah to ask yourself, well, what, what just happened and and how can I move on? I, I say always you know, be like a, a golf player. Focus on your next shot and you'll have a much better chance of having a, a good next shot. If you're still thinking about your last shot, your next shot's not going to be very good. So um, I use that analogy a lot. Focus on your next shot. Be in the moment and um, try and just bounce back because there's so many opportunities in the legal business. If something didn't work out, maybe it's because of the type of law you were doing. Maybe it's because you're a natural litigator and you were doing corporate. Or maybe it's because you, you like creativity and you were in an area that boxed you in with too many, you know, um, um, certainties. Um, maybe it was the opposite. Maybe you needed certainties and there was too much creativity. Maybe, maybe you, I don't know. Maybe you just ask yourself, what might it have been? And then try and tack a little bit so that 
you know, you're doing something slightly differently. Have you had any failures that turned out to be a positive thing later on? Any failures? Geez, I was trying to think of that. What could have been a failure that turned out to be a positive thing? Or disappointment. Thing? What did I say? Let me see here. Oh, well, when I first left, so I, I went to the um, competition bureau for three and a half years, and I left, and I went to a firm that didn't have any competition lawyers thinking, well, okay, I just wrote a book on the area, and I just wrote these uh, merger guidelines, and uh, gee, I'll be able to be, you know, the person. And I was in my mid-30s, I guess it was 1992, so I would have been 34. And what I didn't realize is, you know, there aren't too many 34-year-olds who attract business in, uh, in the big firms. Um, and so there was nothing going on in that firm. And so I went to another firm. So I was a big fish in a small pond and thought I could, you know, make this work. And it, there was nothing going on. So I, you know, eventually I got bored and said, well, okay, I've got to recalibrate here. And, you know, fortunately I was getting um, repeated offers from another place, which is where I went, Davies, and wound up having a phenomenal decade working on, you know, the most fascinating competition law issues that anybody was working on during that decade. And so, you know, there's an example of, you know, going somewhere, it not being the right fit, adjusting, um, you know, fairly quickly. I think I was there 16 months and, uh, you know, not looking back. So that's the closest I could come to an example for you. A good one. <laughs> wouldn't really consider it a failure, just, you know, wasn't really what I was looking for. It didn't, didn't meet my expectations. And so uh, I recalibrated pretty, you know, after it became apparent that, uh, you know, that other people were kind of taking over that cutting edge that I'd been sitting on in competition. <laughs> and I wanted to get back on it. <laughs> that certainly sounds like optimism is one of the skills that, um, or that the root of your success. What other attributes or experiences? Uh... Well, um, I would say that, yeah, you should, you should always be looking at things from a half full as opposed to a half empty perspective. So, yeah, optimism might be a way of putting that. You have to be passionate. You really have to be switched on. You got to be, like I, I, when I was in the competition bureau and then when I left, I, I spent a lot of weekends and evenings writing. Like I wrote a book and then I wrote tons of articles. I joined the ABA, I joined the CBA, I was actively involved. So I was out there passionately uh, writing, talking, discussing on panels, teaching about all sorts of different issues that I was just totally uh, interested in and passionate about. And so I guess that led people to notice me because it's hard to get noticed. I mean, there's, you know, there's, I don't know how many members of the, young, of the Upper Canada Law Society there are, but probably over 100,000. There's a lot of lawyers in Ontario. <laughs> so if you want to get noticed, I mean, you got to distinguish yourself somehow. And so, yeah, by being passionate and, and writing and, you know, writing about things that others hadn't written about because it was, you know, a fairly new area in 1986 as a result of the amendments. Mergers got decriminalized, abuse of dominance got decriminalized. The whole area was in for a revolution and then pre-merger notification came in in 1987. And so yeah, I was able to write about a lot of this stuff, uh, 
go out and look at how things were looked at elsewhere and then bring these concepts back and say, well, okay, this is what they do elsewhere. Either we should think about doing them the same way or maybe tweak it a bit and say, well, we should do it kind of this way, but tweaked for our own, uh, to reflect our own realities or wording of our act or whatever. Um, and so just by being totally switched on, I think uh, I wound up doing well. Right? Yeah. Just like other people I know. <laughs> now you have, to, you have to be switched on to do well. Passionate. Right? You, can't, you can't have a nine-to-five mentality. If you have a nine-to-five mentality, you're not going to do well. Right? Now, at the same time, you, you may want to have a family, and so you've got to be good at balancing one of my regrets is that I didn't spend enough time with my kids in the 90s because I was, you know, in a very demanding M&A-oriented, transaction-oriented practice. And so if there's one thing I could do differently, it would be, it would, it would be to you know, go back <laughs> and figure out how to get home earlier in those years. It's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge that a lot of young lawyers, a lot of young couples struggle with. But that work-life balance, uh, people have to think very carefully about where they want to be, where, the, where their own needle is on the scale, on the, on the spectrum, and um, try not to put themselves in a position where they're going to be unhappy by working too much. Um, or you can kind of just get out there early and really get your innings in um, with, uh, with the practice, build your reputation as much as you can for five to seven years and then have your family. Or you do it the other way, you know, you focus on the family first and then uh, build your practice after that. Um, or, or, you know, do more of the types of things that get you noticed later. But I'd be more inclined to say, get your, <laughs> get your, build your reputation in your mid to late 20s, early 30s, and then try and have your family at that point. And then focus on them and then do a real significant shifts so of, you know, you're home uh, at a reasonable hour every day, maybe for dinner, and, um, and as much of the weekend as, as you can be with your family. How's your work balance now, work life? <laughs> Still a challenge. <laughs> can you describe your day for us so we have a better idea from the moment you wake up to... Yeah, well, often um, I'll come in, you know, with an idea of what I want to do that day. And, you know, I might have a list of five things. I might have a list of just one thing. And I will know that in my current position, as soon as I walk in, there will be other things waiting for me. And sometimes those other things will kidnap my day until very late in the day and it will only be once most people have gone home that I will then you know towards the later part of the afternoon four or five five thirty that I'll finally get to that list um, but I do try and be guided by a principle which is never let the unimportant postpone the, the important so uh, I'm, I always have that principle in, in my mind and if I'm inclined to kind of do something unimportant I'll pull myself back and say, no, this is my priority for the day. And I, and I got to get, you know, just one, two or three things done. And 
you know, sometimes it'll result in a large number, a large backlog. But otherwise, you're going to have important things getting postponed because you're dealing with unimportant things. And so uh, that's a principle that I find personally helpful. It might drive other people <laughs> a little bit to despair because things that I could be dealing with in a few seconds may not get done as quickly as they like. But, you know, <laughs> I guess everybody has their own modus operandi. I'm just looking at Alina and thinking, what a great strategy around exam time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Well, email will kill you, right? Yes. Email, the internet, all that stuff. It just, it'll suck up your time. I, I look at how much time uh, young people, either my kids or others in the family, spend on social media and that type of thing. And I just, wow, like, <laughs> do you guys realize how much time it's... It's, it's all consuming. It's consuming, yeah, yeah. So... Um, one of the questions, uh, the show is directed towards law students and young professionals. Um, what are some activities um, that we can do now as young lawyers to be better advocates for our clients in the future? Well, you know, I think being involved in pro bono work, um, legal aid work, um, the bar, you know, the bar will, by, be, by being involved in like the CBA or the, old, you know, the provincial association or the ABA, you'll be aware of issues that you might not otherwise ever become aware of or that might not come to your attention. And so you wind up being on top of a much broader range of issues just by virtue of your involvement in these other organizations. And so, you know, I'd say get involved. Get involved in, um, in your communities. Get involved in pro bono. Get involved in, in these, uh, these organizations. As a judge, have you seen advocacy change throughout the years? Not so much. I mean, there's always there are always people who are better than others. There, I mean, that's natural. There will be people who are, you know, more organized, more focused, uh, will come in and, you know, t deal with two or three or four issues. Other people who will be less organized and, you know, come in and ramble and... <laughs> throw the kitchen sink at us. and uh, uh, I like an understated style. I don't like the flamboyant, you know, loud, extroverted. I tend to like a more um, understated, focused, don't play hide the ball with me, I recognize the warts and deal with them. Stand up, you know, deal with something head on, as opposed to pretending that something's not an issue. Can you tell us about the process of decision-making? More, not necessarily the private details, but just the process. So, well, first of all, we would read the party's submissions. Uh, we'd read their affidavits. We'd read uh, the appendices to the affidavits, so the evidence. We'd become familiar with, with the submissions and the evidence before we go into a court, into the hearing. Uh, we might... We, we, I, we would invariably have discussions with our clerks about it, and we might say to the clerks, well, you know, um, what about this case? What about that case? What about this issue? What about that issue? Did they talk about it? Well, mm, I think there might be something on this. Go check it out. And if there is, we might give the parties a heads up before the hearing and see what they have to say. 
Um, then, of course, we go into the hearing, and we hear what they have to say. And then we get to write it up. <laughs> and obviously, we all want to get our decisions out as quickly as possible. But sometimes the parties will have done such a good job that we got to go away and think about it. <laughs> or we, we always would have had to go away because it's just so complicated. And so it, uh, it becomes difficult to issue a decision the same day in, in a lot of matters. And so you, you have a reserve. And sometimes in the process of writing the reserve, you, you know, you're working intensively with your clerk to um, clarify your understanding of, a, of an area of the law, to get a better understanding, to find out whether there are other cases on this, other cases on that. You bump up against something and you just don't think it's right and you figure out if there's a way to get around it. <laughs> um, uh, you know, if you think that that's what you need to do to get the just result. And sometimes, as I said earlier, uh, you can't, and you got to say, well, you know, much as I'd like to <laughs> grant this application, uh, the law is pretty clear that, you know, this is, this, is, um, this is the way it should go, and so you don't grant it, uh, or the other way, right? You may, you, may, uh, you may agree with the respondent and not grant it because, uh, you know, because you're, you're persuaded that uh, that the respondent's right, so. <clears throat> from what I understand about judges, from what I've read, I know there are certain things that anybody in a position of a judge cannot do, like support fundraisers yeah. or causes or social media, I think. Well, people shouldn't, I mean, I think for security reasons, judges would probably be well advised not to be, you know, active on Facebook or, you know, other social media. Obviously, judges shouldn't be sitting on matters where there might be a reasonable apprehension of bias. You know, if they're really good friends with one of the lawyers or if they've got an interest in, a financial interest in the outcome somehow, if they own the stock of one of the parties or um, um, what are some other things here. Obviously, we can't give legal advice, right? So you get a lot of people asking you for legal advice from the day you get called to the bar. And one of the things that's great about being a judge is you can say, I can't give legal advice anymore. <laughs> you can't really comment on your own decisions. I mean, you're supposed to speak through your decisions, so you can't comment on your or other people's decisions. Um, and obviously, we've got the, the Canadian Judicial Council's ethical principles for judges. And so, you know, you can't be transgressing those. Those are all the no-nos. Those are a lot of the no-nos, I'm sure. I've forgotten one or two. Those are the ones that are top of mind. Are there any restrictions outside of your legal sphere? Anything in private life that you can't do? Well, I mean, the other thing is you have a certain... Pe people look up to judges, or some people do anyway, and so, you know, you have to conduct yourself in a certain way. You have to... You can't be out doing certain things that you might have done <laughs> before you were a judge, uh, because you know you would undermine confidence in in the judiciary if if you did that. You know, people might lose respect for the judiciary, and so you have to be more modest in your behavior and comments. But I guess that happens as you get older, anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I wish we could record the looks. The exchange, <laughs> the exchange of looks are priceless. I was curious about, uh, because we were talking about that, how many hours do you work a week generally? Oh, boy. <laughs> I would say probably a good 60 anyway, 60 to 70. But the average judge, I don't think, would. I mean, I had to ramp it up when I became chief. I think uh, I certainly got a lifestyle bump when I went from private practice at a big Bay Street firm to being a, a regular Puini judge. I got more time, and that was wonderful. That was really fabulous um, just to live and spend with my family and friends. Now it's back to almost the way it was before. <laughs> So if, if not law? That's a good question. You know, I'm thinking it probably, I probably would have gone into business because I was wrestling during my articles about whether to stay in law or, or go the business route. I think I could have really enjoyed the business hmm. world. I really enjoyed finance in, in my MBA. Uh, finance and economics were uh, my major. And uh, I think I could definitely have seen myself uh, doing well in business. Or at least having fun, being passionate about it. What convinced you to go into law when you were wrestling with the idea? I stumbled across competition law. <laughs> yeah, because I was wrestling with law versus business, corporate versus litigation, and uh, competition law was kind of right on the cusp of both. And uh, I instantly loved it, you know, enrolled in a master's at U of T. Wound up writing a big thesis that became a book and just took off. Just loved it. So, hmm. you know, they, Confucius says if you find something you like to do, you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I didn't feel like work. I was working. I, I was spending large numbers of hours per week on this, but I didn't feel like work. I really loved it. So, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much My for pleasure. your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's great. Well, hopefully somebody will get something out of it. This was very helpful. I'm going to try your practices of managing my time better. <laughs> <laughs>
don't just do what you're asked to do. Be proactive and think, well, what else would this person need? You know, try and be more, even more helpful and try and take ownership of it if you can. That's great advice. Yeah, because then the person is going to be extremely impressed. They're going to go, wow, like this person really kind of went the extra mile. Distinguish themselves. you got to distinguish yourself. That's how you get ahead because it's very competitive out there.